Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to Haunted Up North. There's no problem, by the way. I don't know what you're on about, but it is still me. It's your host. I'm back. It's Victoria, here to tell you some supernatural stories from the Northern Territories of the UK. Whilst you're listening to this episode, I do hope you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and most importantly, entertained by the spectral tales you're about to hear today. Because in this particular broadcast, we're going to be talking about something rather mysterious. It's not entirely spectral, though there is a little bit of spectralness involved. But before we get into the nitty-gritty, the Mesian potatoes, as it were, before we get into the possibly spectral, but definitely mysterious storytelling, I'd just like to take a moment to thank three very special people for their continued support on my Haunted Up North coffee page. Joss, Sam and Raw Art Scotland. Big thanks to you. I'm so very grateful for your kind donations to the podcast. So grateful, in fact, I'm going to get out my fun facts. Find the tab that says list of allies and put all of your names in there. But seriously... Thank you! Every penny contributed goes straight towards my T-800 endoskeleton arm and brain chip replica fund. (laughs) It not, really. It goes towards helping people learn more about ghosts. And if anyone else fancies contributing to my paranormal podcast and helping people learn more about ghosts, then you can find the link to my Haunted Up North coffee page, which is the page you go to if you'd like to donate, in this episode's show notes. Down there. It's down there. Another little shout-out I'd like to share relates to the subject of nightmares, which Jess and I talked about in the last episode of Haunted Up North. There's an account I follow on Instagram called Pork Chops. (laughs) Pork Chops Paper Cuts, all one word, is the handle, and its feed is dedicated to a wealth of fabulous creations. Original paper artwork, laser cuts, art prints, handmade notebooks, greetings cards and other paper goods to be exact by an incredible artist from Brighton. I'll add a link to their Etsy page in the show notes down there because they are brilliant. But this incredible artist who I follow on Instagram who goes by the name of Porkchops does some spellbinding Halloween and horror inspired paper cut artwork. It's truly mesmerising. I don't know how they do it. But they do, they do it. And they recently contacted me to tell me they'd listened to my last episode of Jess and I talking about nightmares, in particular our own personal nightmares, and Porkchops, in this message that they sent me, told me about some of their own personal nightmares. And this is what they said. I'm listening to your podcast. So relatable. I have nightmares pretty much daily. My reoccurring nightmare is seeing a demon in the corner of the room. When I try to tell anyone about it, 
I can't speak or move. Ooh, that's very insidious, isn't it? My other reoccurring nightmare is the same as the one you mentioned. An exam or massive bit of coursework to do in not very much time, and my hands don't work and I become very muddled. The saddest thing is that I coo like a pigeon in my sleep whenever I'm having these nightmares. I also sometimes sleep on my back, with my hands crossed over my chest, like a vampire. So, during the last episode, I mentioned that one of my reoccurring nightmares is that I've gone back to university and I have to do another degree at the last minute and I don't even know what the subject is. Weirdly, Martin, who didn't even listen to the last episode, he had the very same nightmare the other night and it seems that Pork Chops has the same kind of experience. It's obviously a vibe, and I wonder why. Skynet, my friend Skynet, I I call him a friend, so they'll be nice to me on Judgment Day. Skynet has a range of different theories about why people might have this genre of nightmare, and this is what they said about about it. I'm going to read it out. Dreams about being in an exam you haven't prepared for are a common dream that can be interpreted in many ways. Some possible interpretations include feeling unprepared or stressed about a situation in your waking life, tick, fear of failure, tick, low self-esteem, double tick, trauma from past experiences, triple, triple tick, (laughs) or a sign that you need to take control of your life. And I like this last one the best because it offers a suggestion for positive action. If you feel like you are not in control of your life, this dream could be a message from your subconscious that you need to take charge. Which doesn't sound like a personal claims advert at all. But I hope you're listening, Porkchops, because we need to take control of our lives and we need to start doing it now. As for the demon thing, this is what came up when I asked Skynet about that. Dreams about demons or ghosts can be scary and disturbing but they can also have a deeper meaning. Here are some possible interpretations of these dreams. Fear of the unknown, feeling powerless or controlled, unresolved trauma, or creative expression. This last one would make sense considering Porkchops is an artist. For some people, dreams about demons or ghosts can be a way for their subconscious mind to express their creativity. These dreams can be a way for you to explore your fears and anxieties in a safe and controlled environment. So there you go. Fear your demon no more, pork chops. No more cooing like a pigeon, please. But do continue to sleep like a vampire. It's very important that you keep doing that, because it's cool. And anyone listening, if you're interested in delving deeper into pork chops' artistry, You can stay updated by following them on Instagram or visiting their Etsy page. Down there. Keep an eye out for their eerie creations next month during Porktober, which is their annual October art project slash event, during which time they intricately carve horror-themed or spooky designs onto leaves, making it a unique and captivating experience for art enthusiasts and horror enthusiasts, and leaf enthusiasts. I am enthusiastic about all of those things, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Porkchops, for sharing with us your nightmares. 
And if you have any more, let us know so we can be scared by them, and then ask Skynet what they mean. So the tale you're about to hear today, we're actually getting to it now, the story of the meat and potatoes. The tale you're about to hear today occurred at the very start of the 20th century, the 1900s in fact. That's what it's called, December 1900, the year 1900. The final days of December 1900, with only a month left of Queen Victoria's reign of the United Kingdom. The end of an era, but the beginning of an intriguing enigma. A riddle that for over 120 years has puzzled, like, everyone in the whole wide world. Especially me. But I don't just find it puzzling, I find it rather fascinating, as I'm sure you will too by the end of this episode. The intriguing enigma I speak of is... The Flannan Isle Mystery. In December 1900, a peculiar incident unfolded on the remote Flannan Isles in the Outer Hebrides off the west coast of Scotland, when three lighthouse keepers, Thomas Marshall, James Duckett, and Donald MacArthur, mysteriously vanished without leaving a single trace of what had happened to them behind. To this day, the question of their whereabouts remains unanswered. A haunting riddle that still lingers as one of Scotland's most perplexing and enduring mysteries. The Flannan Isles, otherwise known as the Seven Hunters, are a small group of islands in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. They are situated about 17.5 nautical miles west of the Isle of Lewis and have been without permanent residence since the Flannan Isles Lighthouse was automated in 1971. The Flannan Isles Lighthouse stands atop the highest point on Eileen Moor, the largest island among the Flannan Isles. It's currently uninhabited like the rest of the Flannan Isles, incredibly remote with a rugged landscape of hills, cliffs and sea stacks, and the island is also home to a variety of wildlife including seals, seabirds and whales, which makes it a popular destination for hikers and nature enthusiasts. It can be reached by private boat from the mainland of Scotland, it's free to visit and open all year round, but if you do fancy a trip to investigate the various attractions of Eileen Moor, be sure to go prepared for all elements, as the weather can be unpredictable. It has a history of being a place of pilgrimage spanning almost 1,000 years, and there are some pretty saintly sights upon the island to observe, such as St Cormac's Cave, St Cormac's Chapel, and St Cormac's Cross. St Cormac seems to be very popular with the Eileen Moor crowd. He was a 6th century Irish saint and the patron saint of Eileen Moor, as if you couldn't tell, and he founded a monastery upon the island and lived and died in a cave there. St Cormac's Cave. So, understandably, this is why everything's named after him. Have a look online at the cave, chapel and cross. They're very cute. (laughs) And very old. And very cute. I like looking at stuff like that. I slapped my thigh because I to because that just shows how much I like looking at stuff like that. So I like looking at them. But the thing I like looking at most is obviously the Flannan Isles Lighthouse. Not just because it's old and lighthousey, but because of its connection with the disappearance of three keepers once stationed there. The 75-foot lighthouse, designed by David Allen Stevenson for the Northern Lighthouse Board, was constructed from 1895 to 1899 by George Lawson of Rutherglen, 
at a cost of £1,899, which is the equivalent of £233,000. No, (laughs) £233,361 in today's money. And it was first illuminated on December 7th, 1899. One of its notable achievements, apart from saving lots of ships and mariners from being killed at sea, was that in 1925 it became one of the earliest Scottish lights to receive shore communications via wireless telegraphy. On September 28, 1971, the lighthouse underwent a significant transformation when it was automated, replacing human attendance with advanced technology to maintain its vital role in guiding ships safely through the seas. During the latter part of December 1900, however, The lighthouse, in contrast, remained non-automated, hinging entirely on the vigilance and dedication of lighthouse keepers to ensure the continuous operation of the light. Three such vigilant and dedicated lighthouse keepers, James Duckett, the principal keeper, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant keeper, and William MacArthur, the occasional keeper, were entrusted with the crucial responsibility of tending to the remote outpost situated on Eileen Moor, with a rotating fourth keeper spending time on shore. The Flannan Isles Lighthouse marked their final known whereabouts, as on December 15th, 1900, when their last log entry was made, James, Thomas and William mysteriously disappeared from Eileen Moor, never to be seen again. The first indication that something was amiss on the Flannan Isles was around midnight on December 15th, 1900, when the transatlantic steamer, the Arctur, en route from Philadelphia to the port of Leith, reported in its log that the light from the Flannan Isles lighthouse was not operational. This was highly unusual, as it was invariably kept lit, even in harsh weather conditions, such as those experienced by the Arctur on that particular night. When the Arctur docked in Leith on December the 18th, 1900, three days after the sighting, the crew reported the unusual outage to the Northern Lighthouse Board. A relief vessel, the lighthouse tender Hesperus, was supposed to be dispatched immediately, but it was unable to sail as planned on December the 20th due to adverse weather conditions. It finally arrived on the Flannan Isles on Boxing Day, December the 26th, at midday. Upon arrival, Captain Harvey, the master of the Hesperus, sounded his horn and sent up a flare. However, there was no response. There was no welcome from the lighthouse keepers, no flag on the flagstaff, and no provision boxes left for them, as was customary. Captain Harvey recorded the following report. On our arrival there this afternoon, No sign of life was to be seen on the island. After disembarking from the Hesperus, relief lighthouse keeper Joseph Moore climbed the steep 160 steps up to the lighthouse. When he reached the top, he found the main door and gate to the compound closed. The beds were unmade, the clock was stopped, the table was set for a meal that had never been eaten, and a chair had been toppled over, as though whoever had been sitting on it had risen in a hurry. The only sign of life was a canary sitting quietly in a cage. No trace of James, Thomas or Donald could be found. He retraced his steps to the landing stage in order to convey this grim news to Harvey. 
In response, the captain dispatched two additional sailors to the shore alongside Moore. A more thorough search of the building later revealed that the lamps had been meticulously cleaned and refilled, yet no further clues were uncovered, save for the discovery of a set of oilskins. This find raised concerns, as it suggested that one of the lighthouse keepers had left the premises without them, venturing out only in his shirt sleeves. Unusual and worrying behaviour, given the adverse weather conditions documented in the keeper's last log entry. This log entry was timestamped at 10am on December the 15th, the very day the lighthouse beacon had failed to shine. Shifting their focus to the landing platform on the island's east side, the three men observed that everything there remained intact and undisturbed. However, upon investigating the western side, they encountered ample evidence of a recent and violent storm's impact. A supply box had been forcefully ruptured, its contents scattered across the ground, despite its location over a hundred feet above sea level. Iron railings lining a pathway were contorted and bent out of shape. A section of railway track had been ripped from its concrete moorings, and an immense rock weighing more than a tonne had been displaced from its original position. On a nearby clifftop, towering a daunting 200 feet above sea level, they noticed that the turf had been stripped away, extending up to 33 feet from the cliff's edge. More and three volunteer seamen, including the boy master Mr MacDonald, who happened to be aboard the Hesperus at the time, as well as seamen Lamont and seamen Campbell, were entrusted with the responsibility of remaining on the island to maintain the lighthouse's operation. The vessel then departed, making its way back to Lewis. Upon reaching Lewis, Harvey dispatched a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board with a date of December 26th, 1900, conveying the distressing news. A tragic incident has occurred at the Flannans, he said. The three keepers, Duckett, Marshall and the Occasional, have vanished from the island. The timepieces had come to a halt, and other indications strongly suggest that this mishap likely transpired nearly a week ago. These unfortunate souls may have been swept over the cliffs, or lost to the sea while attempting to secure a crane. On the 29th of December, Robert Muirhead, a superintendent with the Northern Lighthouse Board, who had personally recruited the three missing individuals, arrived on Eileen Moor to conduct an official investigation into the perplexing incident. Upon examining the clothing left within the lighthouse, he pieced together a plausible sequence of events. Muirhead deduced that Duckett and Marshall had ventured to the western landing stage to secure the equipment situated there. Simultaneously, MacArthur, whom he inferred the oilskins had belonged to, had departed the lighthouse during heavy rainfall, clad only in his shirt sleeves, in an earnest attempt to assist his colleagues when they failed to return. Notably, he pointed out that whoever had left the lighthouse last and unattended had violated NLB regulations. Furthermore, he observed that some of the damage to the western landing area was beyond belief unless witnessed firsthand. Muirhead went on to detail that based on the evidence he was able to gather, it was evident that the men had been on duty until noon on Saturday the 15th of December. 
they had descended to secure a container holding mooring and landing ropes, which were securely stowed in a crevice in the rock, approximately 110 feet above sea level. It was then that an unusually large wave surged up the rock face, overshooting them and subsequently crashing down with tremendous force, sweeping them away. Wind, he reasoned, could not have been the catalyst for this tragedy, as the wind's direction would have propelled the men towards the island rather than out to sea. Muirhead firmly concluded that the enigma of the Flannan Islands was in essence an unfortunate accident. The bodies of James Duckett, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur were never found, and Muirhead's report, as far as the general public was concerned, did not conclude the mystery. Speculation regarding the fate of the three keepers quickly ensued, and far-fetched tales began to circulate, including fantastical accounts of colossal sea serpents or gigantic seabirds spiriting the men away, theories of a planned escape to elude mounting debts and embark of a new life via a secret ship arrangement, assertions of foreign spies abducting them, or grim scenarios involving a skeletal crew from a ghost ship known locally as the Phantom of the Seven Hunters. Among the more plausible theories, some surmised that the keepers met their tragic end whilst attempting to secure a container nestled in a crevice above sea level, or that MacArthur had attempted to warn his colleagues of large dangerous incoming waves and, in the process, was swept away with the others. Some researchers delved into the psychological aspects of the three men, MacArthur had a reputation for engaging in brawls and displayed a propensity for violence. It is proposed by them that a confrontation unfolded perilously close to the cliff's edge, leading to a catastrophic tumble to everyone's demise. In the aftermath of their tragic disappearance, the speculation and rumours surrounding the lighthouse keepers only grew more intense. Over time, a narrative emerged about the existence of peculiar logbook entries attributed to Thomas Marshall in the days leading up to their vanishing. According to this logbook, Marshall noted on December 12th that there were unusually severe winds, the likes of which I have never witnessed in my 20 years of service. It is also claimed that he remarked on Duckett's uncharacteristic quietness and observed Donald MacArthur a robust and seasoned mariner, known for his brawling, crying. Entries for December the 13th were said to indicate that the storm continued to rage, with all three men resorting to prayer, a perplexing detail given their extensive experience as lighthouse keepers, who would typically place their trust in the secure, elevated lighthouse standing 150 feet above sea level. Furthermore, official records did not register any reports of storms in the area on December 12th, 13th or 14th. The last supposed log entry, dated December the 15th, stated, Storm ended, sea calm. God is over all. Nevertheless, no concrete evidence of these alleged logbook entries has ever come to light. Official reports from that period indicate that the final entry in the lighthouse log was made on December the 13th, with minor notations regarding the weather on the morning of December the 15th. To this day, the events within the lighthouse remain shrouded in mystery. Whether it was an unfortunate accident or something more sinister, 
the disappearances of James, Thomas and Donald stand as a heart-rending tragedy. The men left behind grieving families who were never able to uncover the truth. Robert Muirhead, too, was profoundly affected by the loss. I had visited the Flannan Islands as recently as December the 7th when the relief was made, he recounted, and I carry with me the sombre memory that I was the last person to clasp their hands and bid them farewell. Despite it having been well over a century since the tragic incident at the Flannan Islands, a haunting legacy surrounding the lighthouse still lingers. Numerous subsequent keepers stationed on the island have reported eerie and inexplicable phenomena. The apparition of a man in an oilskin coat has been seen walking the cliffs or standing on the landing stage. The sound of footsteps has been heard on the stairs when the lighthouse is empty and objects have been moved around seemingly by unseen forces. Among the most unsettling of these accounts are claims of hearing mysterious voices, often in the dead of night, crying out the names of Ducat, Marshall and MacArthur. These spectral voices, it's been said, echo through the lonely corridors of the lighthouse and reverberate across the desolate landscape. The keepers who experienced these spectral utterances spoke of a profound sense of unease that accompanied the disembodied calls as if the spirits of the vanished keepers were still present, trying to make their presence known from the realm beyond. Some still believe that the restless souls of Ducat, Marshall and MacArthur remain tied to the island, unable to find peace until the truth behind their disappearance is uncovered. What do you think the truth is, Northlings? <clears throat> what do you think the truth is, Northlings? A researcher named James Love discovered that Thomas Marshall had previously been fined for losing his equipment during a storm and suggests that Marshall and Ducat may have been trying to secure their equipment during the storm in order to avoid another fine but became swept away by waves. Which is basically what that guy from the Northern Lighthouse Board said. But it seems extra painful to think that they were doing it in order to not be fleeced of their hard-earned pennies. The coastline of Isle Moor is pretty jagged. It's it's a it's a very jagged coastline. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why that's funny. Uh, but if you look online at photographs, it's cut with narrow, steep-sided gullies called geos. And the west landing, where most of the storm damage occurred, where the keeper's equipment was found scattered about, is located in one of these geos that ends in a cave. During high seas or storms, water would rush into the cave and then explode out again. So it's possible that MacArthur saw a series of large waves approaching the island and knowing the danger they posed to his colleagues, ran down there to warn them, only to be swept away by these violent sea surges also. It's probably the most credible explanation for what happened, but certainly not the most interesting one. I think possibly it's nicer to believe that the lighthouse keepers ran off, or rather sailed off, and lived it up somewhere, instead of spending an eternity languishing lifeless at the bottom of the ocean. 
I was watching, <laughs> uh, I was watching <laughs> Master and Commander at the weekend, that film with Russell Crowe in it from 2003. I think it's based on a book from a series by a guy called Patrick O'Brien. It, it's a really good, it's a really good film. I hadn't seen it before and I, I love anything that takes place on a boat or a ship. Most of the action in Master and Commander does take place on a ship and I massively enjoyed it, but there's this scene where a horrible storm hits and one of the crew aboard this ship falls over the side as a result of the storm and, spoiler alert, he's swimming towards some wreckage in the hope of saving himself from getting completely swept out to sea, but, and this is something that's made a huge deal of in the film, a crewmate's demise, please be assured, is not lamented lightly here, but his friends have to chop this piece of wreckage away from the body of the boat because the entire ship will be dragged down with it if they don't uh, cut it loose, and this poor guy is swimming for his life, trying to get to the wreckage, not knowing it's about to be removed, meaning that even if he reaches it, it'll be a pointless endeavour anyway, and the moment that the wreckage breaks free, he sort of does this shocked, sorrowful gasp that's absolutely heartbreaking, and he can only watch desperately from the inside of these waves while the ship sails away, with all of his friends sadly watching him as he's completely consumed by the vastness of the sea. But that scene is so devastating, because someone essentially dies at the hands of his friends, who had no choice but to do what they did, and his last memories are unfortunately having to witness them do that. But the way the production represents the sheer magnitude of the sea, and how it can swallow a person up in a heartbeat with no trace of them having ever existed is perfect, in an unobviously harrowing way. It's a heavy scene, and I was traumatised for quite a while after, so I can understand that even if you'd curse your husband, friend or family member for deserting you and sailing off for a supposedly better life somewhere else, it's probably still easier to think of them as being relatively happy somewhere safe above water compared to imagining them in their final gasps for breath after being engulfed by enormous waves and the watery horrors of the ocean. So I can see why some people might still cling to that theory of them having just sailed off. As for sea monsters, who knows? <laughs> uh, sea monsters would be a good episode to research, however. I do keep coming across them from time to time when I'm reading about good ghosts to talk about, so perhaps I'll do some sort of monster-themed episode next time. It might, it might not be sea monsters. They will be coming. The sea monsters are coming. But it will probably just be a monster-themed one. But listen out for future episodes involving sea monsters. There's a film called The Vanishing from 2018 starring Peter Mullen, Gerard Butler, Gerard Butler, sorry, not Gerard, and Connor Swindles, sorry, Connor Swindells, <laughs> not Connor Swindles, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Anyway, there's a film called The Vanishing, which has its own interpretation of what happened to the three missing keepers. It was actually filmed around Dumfries and Galloway, where my parents live, in Port Logan, Port Patrick, Stranra, and the Mull of Galloway, all favourite haunts of mine whenever I've been up to visit over the years. And I, I remember my dad's partner actually telling me, I, I can't remember exactly which location it was in, but I remember her telling me that Gerard Butler had been in one of her local pubs and had had selfies and pictures taken with various residents you know, while he was filming the film, and that he seemed like a really nice guy, which is a, it's a nice, it's a lovely story, that. But the film I would recommend, because it's worth a watch, I thought it was great, it was very atmospheric, 
I think I rented it for pretty cheap on Amazon and you can tell the narrative has been meticulously researched. The explanation the film offers as to why they disappeared, I don't think it's genuinely delivering an opinion on what they think actually happened, but it it does a good job of conveying the notion that anything could have happened. Like anything. We just don't know. And perhaps because of the fact we can't say for absolute certain what occurred on the 15th of December 1900, we'll never be truly satisfied with any explanation, no matter how likely the explanation is. So you could probably make a million films of (laughs) the Flannan Isle mystery without ever really running out of ideas. (laughs) Do you know what we have run out of, though? Time. Because it's time for me to go. So that, listeners, is all for this episode of Haunted at Moth. I hope you enjoyed learning about the uncanny disappearance of the Eileen Moore lighthouse keepers. Thanks for listening, and thanks for letting me inject a bit of Outer Hebrides soul into your day. I hope you found these ghosts to be good ones, and that you were suitably entertained by them. Long live the Flannan Isles and all who haunt them, and may their power forever compel you to never presume that the world we live in isn't full of mysteries we shall never be able to explain. See you later. Bye. The Mesian potatoes, as it were.